0: Good afternoon, everyone. This is Danny Haifong. You are tuning in to another stream right here on the Left Lens YouTube channel. And yeah, so again, this is Danny Hai Fong. You're tuning into the Left Lens YouTube channel. Of course, do like the stream, do subscribe to the channel, hit that notifications bell. And help boost the algorithm, again, by liking the stream. And to support this work, you can do so at patreon.com slash Fong. That is the way to support this show. That is also the way to just support all of the work that I am doing, my columns, the streams, and otherwise. So, with that said, I'm here for a particular reason. There are a few interesting developments that have emerged over the last few days, and I thought I would come on here to talk about them. So while I'm waiting for more to show up, if you're seeing this on Facebook, go to the YouTube, hit that like button, and make sure you subscribe to the channel. Make sure you share this stream so more people come and see. I know it's kind of a middle of the week, afternoon stream, it tends to be when I'm able to to come on uh, during these more kind of flashpoint updates that I'm trying to give and add analysis to them. So with that said, just uh, please, if you can like the stream, subscribe to the channel, hit that notifications bell and support this work at patreon.com slash Danny If you're watching this from any other social media channel, please do go to the YouTube at the left lens and like the stream. So Yeah, let's just get right to it. Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State, former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and much heralded and lauded war criminal on the imperialist establishment, is dead. She died yesterday of cancer. That's, I guess she was battling that. I tend to have no interest in any of that. What's important is to go over her legacy, because Madeleine Albright has a legacy fit for a war criminal, right? And I had people saying that she is the personification of evil. She is the so-called first secretary of state that is, or was, that is a woman, right? So she was the first woman secretary of state that gave her, of course, in this realm of liberal identity politics a veil of legitimacy and just to start off i am old enough although i was very young at this time to remember how president bill clinton his administration was at that time perhaps one of the most propagandized administrations that existed in the United States in the sense that Bill Clinton kind of preceded Obama in the ways in which he was portrayed in such a misleading light. So I remember when I was young, listening to people tell me that Bill Clinton was presiding over a strong economy And there were a lot of people. I grew up in a liberal city, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, right on the Boston border. And a lot of people would tell me that he was down with black people. He's playing the saxophone. He wasn't really about war. He was much more of a peace president than Bush Sr. was. And that the economy was, quote unquote, strong. Even one summer, I was back home from college doing a moving job with former high school students. The city would hire former high school students from uh, the Cambridge uh, Ringe and Latin High School. And I was moving the public schools around. And I remember being in a room with one former student who was older than me by about three or four years. Saying that oh Bill Clinton was really good, except when he bombed that pharmaceutical company, that pharmaceutical facility in Sudan. That was bad, but everything else he did was good. So Bill Clinton, right, in his administration is often seen as the lesser of the less evils of the Democratic Party by those who claim themselves to be liberal and Democrats, right? they have apologized his war criminality away and the ways in which that he spearheaded the neoliberal capitalist system in the post-Soviet era. Now, this has changed a bit with the demise of Hillary Clinton, right? And her political ambitions to become president in 2008, and especially in 2016, we've seen that there is this public opinion shift away from the Clintons. But for more than a few decades, they did enjoy this veil of legitimacy within the ruling order that does still have some credibility. And we see it now with the death of, of Madeline Albright. Madeline Albright being one of the biggest functionaries, most important functionaries of the Clinton apparatus. And so she's dead now. And we can all kind of raise our glass to that. She is not alive. We don't have to at least listen to her say anything new. Although I'm sure if you're watching the corporate media, you are hearing her past words ad nauseum. And I am sorry to you if you are watching any of that. But with that said, we need to talk about Madeleine Albright's legacy because it's basically been forgotten. You know, there's this term to describe the Korean War as the Forgotten War. And we can call people like Madeleine Albright and similar U.S. officials, especially on the Democratic Party side, the Forgotten War mongers, right? Because they often kind of adapt this pseudo-democratic opposition to Donald Trump, this position as the pseudo-opposition to Donald Trump, That has allowed them to essentially, especially within mainstream circles, escape any criticism for their wrongdoing, right? So here we are with Madeleine Albright dead, and she has a long legacy of war criminality that we need to get to. For one, right, we have to talk about Bill Clinton's policies on the African continent, And Madeleine Albright, as the uh, US ambassador to the UN, is often known as someone who called for the withdrawal of peacekeepers. Now, that isn't necessarily the biggest crime that the US committed when it comes to Rwanda. The biggest crime is the propagandization of the so called Rwandan genocide, which saw this civil war be spearheaded with the support of European powers and the United States with the funding and training of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the RPF, and their man, Paul Kagame, who was trained by the Pentagon, who was trained in D.C., he helped facilitate this genocide through a slaughter of Hutus, and the Hutus fought back, and that was what caused this massive displacement and dismemberment, and it's often portrayed and framed as a Hutu massacre, a one-sided massacre in Rwanda that has absolutely no roots outside of Rwanda other than the just barbarism of that African country. But of course, we know now that not only was the United States negligent with its international influence in preventing and stopping the violent uh, internal conflict but it was also actively stoking it and actively facilitating it. And Madeleine Albright played a big role in that and supporting that propaganda narrative and also helping to prolong the conflict when the United States could have easily, easily stopped it. But the United States didn't want to stop it because the United States had other objectives. And that other objective was the creation of a genocidal terrain, not just in Rwanda, but in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Right after the RPF took power in Rwanda, after the so-called genocide, Rwanda invaded uh, the the Democratic Republic of the Congo with Uganda. And we have seen the deaths of over 6 million Congolese since then, all in the name of looting and plundering that resource-rich country for It's neighboring countries that are in large part influenced by U.S. policy, Uganda, Rwanda, uh, but also, of course, for multinational capital, which relies upon the resources of the Democratic Republic of the Congo to feed the supply chains for certain kinds of technology, laptops, cell phones, etc. So Madeleine Albright has a role in that. And that's just the beginning, right? That's just the beginning of the blood on her hands. We can then move on to Yugoslavia, the first so-called humanitarian interventionist war. It is really the birthplace of humanitarian interventionism because it was the United States, through its NATO alliance, that bombed Yugoslavia into pieces in 1999, after waging a decade-long campaign after the Soviet Union fell to first expel Yugoslavia from the United Nations and then to help with support of Germany and other NATO powers, the breaking off of so of Yugoslav republics like Croatia, like Kosovo, etc., in a campaign of annihilation against Serbia, which was the largest Republic of Yugoslavia with many communist party members. The most of the communist party members came from Serbia and there was a campaign of terror and aggression, uh, especially financed through the Kosovo Liberation Army, which was really a ragtag gang of fascists and criminals that uh, ultimately burned Yugoslavia to the ground and split that country up into many pieces. Many of those republics now, like Slovenia, are NATO members, Slovenia, Croatia, and I think there are a few others. So she has a hand in that. She has a hand in that massive bombing campaign and that imperialist venture that destroyed an Eastern European country all in the name of expanding NATO and doing what is happening now with ukraine right isolating russia even though russia at the time was considered this more friendly country under boris yeltsin it did not matter because the doctrine of full spectrum dominance was in full effect And the United States was trying to ensure that even if the Soviet Union had fallen, that that region would never see a country, would never see a people ever rise up and be independent again. And so that's why there was this huge campaign to dismember Yugoslavia and then to steal and plunder all of its resources to ensure that it would remain weak. And so that's what we had Madeleine Albright spearheading as Secretary of State under Bill Clinton. She was spearheading that intervention. She was calling for it. She was extremely racist towards Serbian people. And privately, she told the media, right, in these kind of secret media sessions that they had, that the United States had intentionally made it difficult for Serbia to negotiate with them in order to justify the bombing campaign that would follow. And that they needed bombs, right? And we'll go into all, a summary of all of this that I found through Gloria Lariva at the Party for Socialism and Liberation that kind of summarizes this legacy. And then, of course, there's the sanctions on Iraq. A lot of people have been sharing the 60 Minutes interview that she did, where she was asked, right? And, and at this time, she was the ambassador to the United Nations. She was asked by 60 Minutes, what about the impact of the sanctions? Is it worth it? Because the UN had just come out with a study at the time that said that 500,000 children in Iraq had died because of the sanctions. And at this time, of course, the United States was at war with Iraq. First, there was the Gulf War, but it was still in this campaign to isolate and overthrow Saddam Hussein. And of course, this led to the U.S. invasion of 2003 on a grander pretext. But there was this uh, sort of unconventional war, uh, this war of aggression that the United States was waging under Bill Clinton, which wasn't really talked about. Uh, Bush Sr. started it, Clinton continued it, and of course, Bush massively escalated it. But according to Madeleine Albright, she said it was worth it. And then later, she apologized, saying, oh, no, no, all I meant was that it led to the overthrow of Saddam Hussein later, and that was a good thing. I didn't want children to die like that. But she didn't say that at the time because it was already known that children had been dying in the hundreds of thousands, and it just wasn't a concern for her. So this is the blood that Madeline Albright has on her hands. This is her legacy, right, as a neoliberal, a neocon war hawk of the Foreign policy establishment. Madeline Albright has made her career off of using her identity as a woman to forward the objectives of imperialism, and for that, she has always been and will always be condemnable. She does not deserve any sympathy, any empathy, any condolences, any tears. She has millions of deaths on her hands. She is a global terrorist for the peoples of the world, for oppressed nations, and for any kind of striving for dignity, self-determination, and liberation. And for that, uh, she and those who are associated with her, who remain alive today, uh, deserve justice. They deserve the kind of justice that war criminals deserve. And so... Uh, that is our task from here when it comes to Madeline Albright. So let me share this article that summarizes her legacy quite well. And I didn't even get into what she said during the Bernie Sanders campaign when she was campaigning for Hillary Clinton. But we will get to that since it is part of this article. So it actually quotes in the title. So Gloria Lariva in 2016 wrote, a special place in hell for young Sanders supporters or for Madeleine Albright. Well, Madeleine Albright is dead, but the movement towards socialism, the movement uh, against establishment politics continues. So the special place in hell is likely for Albright. So any, uh, let me just make this bigger, actually. So. Gloria Lariva summarizes her legacy well. She says, as a working woman, feminist, socialist, and candidate, so at this time she was running for a presidential candidacy, she says she condemns with the strongest possible terms the outlandish attacks by Hillary Clinton and Albright, Madeleine Albright, on any woman working in support of the political campaign of Bernie Sanders. This this attack, particularly on young women who are supporting Sanders in such large numbers, is a shameful and opportunist attempt to use the historic struggle for women's rights for the narrowest political gains. In a desperate attempt to reverse the growing support among young women and men for her opponent in the Democratic Party primaries, Hillary Clinton has enlisted the support of notorious warmonger and advocate for mass murder, Madeleine Albright. As Clinton looked on laughing and clapping, Albright told the media on February 6th there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. So that's what she said February 6th uh, while she was campaigning for Hillary Clinton. If there indeed were such a special place, Madeleine Albright would most assuredly be going. And I'm not a religious person, but if I were, I'd say, let it be. So, and going along with her would be Hillary Clinton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as UN UN ambassador and secretary of state for the Bill Clinton regime, Albright was a fanatical advocate of genocidal sanctions that blockaded more than a million women, children, and men in Iraq and the 1999 U.S.-NATO bombing war against Yugoslavia. On May 12, 1996, nearly six years into the U.N.-U.S. sanctions, Albright was interviewed by CBS's 60 Minutes, Leslie Stahl, who had just returned from Iraq, about the impact of the sanctions on on Iraq's population. Stahl said, We have heard that a half million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died in Hiroshima. And you know, is the price worth it? U.S. Ambassador to U.N. Madeleine Albright said, quote, I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. Albright's astoundingly flippant answer was nothing less than a confession to one of the most horrific war crimes in history, indicting not just herself, but all the leaders of the Bush senior, Clinton and Bush two administrations who are fully aware of the lethal impact of sanctions on the people of Iraq. In 1999, Albright played a key war on the a key role in the war on Yugoslavia, engineering the failure of the negotiations that preceded the war. Albright presented the Yugoslav government with an agreement, quote unquote, this is the Rombolet agreement, that would have allowed NATO forces to occupy the entire country with the unheard of provision that Yugoslavia would pay for the expenses of the occupation. After talks broke off, a top official of Albright's told reporters in an off the record session, we intentionally set the bar too high for the Serbs to comply. They need some bombing, and that's why what they are going to get. Actually, so this is a top official, so this was Madeleine Albright. She told reporters that we intentionally set the bar too high for the Serbs to comply. They need some bombing, and that's what they are going to get. When the Yugoslav government predictably rejected the ultimatum disguised as a proposal, quote-unquote, The bombing began and continued for three months. Thousands of civilians were killed, wounded, and made homeless. As was true in Iraq, the entire population was traumatized, with women and children most severely impacted. So, uh, Hillary Clinton joined the war chorus, saying that she urged him to bomb. So, these are the so-called feminists, right? The so-called feminists calling for the destruction of Yugoslavia. So, that Those are just two really important pieces of her legacy, right? Two really important pieces of Madeline Albright's legacy. The imposition, right, and justification and admission of devastating sanctions that killed more than a half million Iraqi children alone. This isn't even to say preventable deaths from adults. We're talking about a half million Iraqi children. That's it from these sanctions. And Madeleine Albright thought that was worth it. And then, of course, with Yugoslavia, she was a virulent, anti-Serbian, racist, anti-communist. She wanted to see Yugoslav's socialist republic, its federation be destroyed at all costs. And so she intentionally, intentionally made it so The demands being imposed on yugoslavia were unacceptable and so the war would continue and yugoslavia would be dismembered tens of thousands of bombs which targeted infrastructure of all kinds schools hospitals there were water systems that were attacked there was massive pollution right because yugoslavia stood between three stands still the republics but uh, now they're broken off but when it was a federation yugoslavia stood between three seas and it said that these massive bombing campaigns with depleted uranium actually polluted these seas and it probably has a worldwide impact at this point because we know from iraq and in yugoslavia just how damaging depleted uranium is on human beings the high levels of cancer that it causes disruptions of the immune system of the cardiovascular system of the central nervous system it is really a a a weapon of mass destruction a biological weapon of mass destruction and nato used it indiscriminately in this bombing campaign against yugoslavia so with all of this said, you know Yugoslavia is really important. And I definitely want to spend a little bit more time because I think Iraq does get a lot of attention because the anti-war movement was much stronger during the Bush years, during the U.S. invasions. So there's a little bit more of a historical memory. But Yugoslavia, there really isn't any historical memory. And there's a really good book by Michael Parenti, I do suggest, To Kill a Nation. That is a really good book on... Everything that happened with regard to Yugoslavia, we could spend hours talking about that campaign, about the history of socialism in Yugoslavia, how Yugoslavia was seen both as uh, a socialist republic that eventually needed to be discarded by imperialism, but also as a useful wedge uh, with the Soviet Union, right? Because it adopted its own model of socialism. It was not necessarily aligned with the Soviet Union. And so actually the U.S. had pretty good relations with Yugoslavia all the way up until the Soviet Union's fall and actually tolerated its development and its existence, at least until 1991. And then the U.S. went full steam ahead with Germany, the newly so-called unified Germany, right on this imperialist adventure to get rid of the last stronghold of socialism in Eastern Europe. And indeed, Yugoslavia was a very modern country. It was averaging something like 7% growth per year for many, many years. It was it was very highly industrialized for its size and for the region at large, right? There's free education and healthcare, affordable housing. And uh, there was a relative level of ethnic unity between uh, those ethnicities that had long and complicated histories. But the United States and Europe, led by Germany, supported the most reactionary forces in the region to essentially break away uh, republics like Croatia, right, using Kosovo as this stronghold of reactionary fanaticism, and then, right, providing air support, finally, in 1999, to these forces, So that all of this support, right, the National Endowment for Democracy was involved, the CIA was involved, all of this covert support could then be given this uh, military support that would cement their power. Because one by one, these republics were voting in right wing reactionary local governments in these republics to try to starve Serbia, which was the stronghold of socialism, It was a stronghold of Yugoslav socialism. And of course, this culminated in the reactionary campaign against Slobodan Milosevic, which led to uh, his eventual arrest and trying for war crimes, which really NATO should have been the one to stand for. But I'm actually um, going to share right a few things about Yugoslavia to get a just a better picture of sort of the political. The political ramifications of it and i'm going to actually share one from uh so actually he is my wife's uncle-in-law uh john catalanato and he wrote about the milosevic trial which i thought would be good to just review because it was everything that madeline albright did in you in building up for the bombing of yugoslavia which led to this kangaroo court trial this propaganda campaign basically to cement the destruction of uh, this socialist republic. So he wrote this last year, uh, almost a year ago from today, uh, and he talked about the Milosevic trial exposing U.S. NATO aggression against Yugoslavia, and he provides a very brief and short context. So he says, few people in the United States, even those in the movement that oppose imperialist aggression, Remember that March 11th is the 15th anniversary of the death of Yugoslav President Slobodan Milošević, so now it's the 16th anniversary. He had just been incarcerated. He had been unjustly incarcerated in Scheveningen prison in The Hague, Netherlands. For movement activists, a review of the attempt to demonize Milošević should illuminate yet another effort by the oppressor class to weaken and divide resistance against its rule. The imperialists have applied similar demonization campaigns against Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, Cuba's Fidel Castro, Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe, and others. And they continue today against Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro, Syria's Bashar al-Assad, and other leaders of whichever country they aim to crush. A contemporary development proves how this important proves how important is this struggle for truth. In Serbia, those forces that collaborate with imperialists are still trying to demonize a Yugoslav leader. At the time of his death in 2006, Milosevic was winning his defense against charges that the combined U.S.-NATO powers brought against him under the cover of a U.N.-sponsored court, the International Criminal Tribunal of the former Yugoslavia. The NATO powers used the U.N. to set up the ICTY as a political instrument to punish anyone in the Balkans who resisted an imperialist takeover in the region. It brought charges against Milosevic in the midst of the U.S.-NATO bombing of Yugoslavia in May of 1999, obviously to bring additional pressure on the Yugoslav leadership to submit. So here's a little summary of the NATO's of t- NATO's 10-year war on Yugoslavia. From 1990 to 1999, the NATO powers with German and U.S. imperialism in the lead took every step to weaken Yugoslavia. From the start, the West German government in Berlin, which had just annexed Socialist German Democratic Republic, aided reactionary separatist forces in each republic of the Multinational Socialist Federation of Yugoslavia. This gave rise to wars in Croatia and Bosnia-Herzegovina, along with separating Slovenia and Macedonia from the rest of Yugoslavia. Since Germany had the closest contacts with the Croatian and Bosnian reactionaries and the largest economic interests in the region, this initiative put imperialism in the lead of seizing influence in the Balkans. Washington, wanting to regain hegemony over Berlin and other NATO powers, then pushed the conflict toward open war, where the Pentagon's preeminent place in the destructive power would predominate. As a pretext, the U.S. used a battle provoked by the so-called Kosovo Liberation Army in the town of Rakak in Kosovo, province of Serbia, on January 15, 1999, claiming it was a massacre. The Bill Clinton administration played up the need for humanitarian intervention. So one thing about that is that the massacre, the massacre, right, was said to be, oh, there's all these... Uh, I, I believe it was Albanians, right? There's, they're, they're just all being killed, right? Serbia is committing genocide. Where have we heard this over and over and over again, right? We've heard this over and over and over again. We're hearing it with China now. China's committing genocide, right? And Libya was committing genocide against its own people. Syria, everything is a genocide. And this all started, this humanitarian interventionism all started with Yugoslavia, so the U.S.-NATO powers thereby succeeded with guns and money in breaking up the Socialist Federal Republic Yugoslavia into a half-dozen half, half weak mini-states, thus overthrowing the last independent government in Eastern Europe. They succeeded in confusing many progressives in the West and the imperialist countries with a well-planned and executed offensive of lies that blamed every problem in the Balkans on Serbia and on Milosevic himself. Their propaganda offensive obscured the interference, aversion, and divide-and-conquer tactics practiced by German and U.S. imperialism in with neo-fascist groupings in the republics of Croatia, Bosnia, and in Serbia's Kosovo province. So anyway, it just talks about how the campaign was failing. It was failing miserably. They couldn't find crimes against him because they were, they were, they were all illegitimate. Uh, Milosevic had put forth thousands of pages of text, 500,000 pages of so-called, to answer 500,000 pages of so-called evidence against him. Failing to prove their case, the ICTY's attempt would have ended in defeat and disgrace for the imperialists had Milosevic not died. So he ended up dying while he was imprisoned, right? So, uh, and of course, the nature of that death is suspicious. The people have, have raised suspicions about that. Well, with that said, I mean, I think that sums up just how damaging Madeline Albright's legacy is right as a champion of sanctions of US NATO bombing campaigns like in Yugoslavia. We don't have to say much more than uh, Madeline Albright was a war criminal, a mass murderer, and an imperialist of the highest order who serve the interests of the most dangerous forces of this ruling order, of this imperialist system. That is who Madeleine Albright is. That is how she should be remembered. And we should not allow Donald Trump or any of these so-called far-right forces, quote-unquote, in the establishment to be exploited and used as a means to whitewash and essentially have us forget the crimes of these forces, right? It is their illegitimacy and criminality, which has opened up large a large uh, political space in vacuum for someone like Donald Trump to emerge. And it is because the left has not been able to use that vacuum for their own organization for power, for real people's power, is why we are in a predicament where we have people like Madeleine Albright and even George W. Bush and Hillary Clinton and all of these war criminals constantly be given facelifts. These imperialists, these capitalist parasites are continuously over and over and over again given facelifts because they are presiding over a rotting system, a system that is in decline, that is losing legitimacy. Madeleine Albright is not loved by majorities of humanity. She is despised by majorities of humanity, right, around the world. And even in the United States, most people don't think twice about her unless you are someone who fawns over Democratic Party and neocon establishment figures. If that is you, then sure. You uh, indeed do love Madeleine Albright, but just know that you find yourself in the minority of humanity, and we always have to remember that. And we should also remember how this war on Yugoslavia had many, many consequences for the environment, for the people of the region, and for the entire planet. And now, I don't know if you remember this, But this is a really important event to remember from the war on Yugoslavia. It was the night that the U.S. bombed a Chinese embassy, killing three journalists. So the United States and NATO were committing an indiscriminate bombing campaign of public institutions, which included mass media it included schools and hospitals and all sorts of public infrastructure. The entire electrical grid of Belgrade was destroyed, of Serbia was destroyed. And in Belgrade, the US bombed a Chinese embassy. This is on my, well, this was actually published on uh, my birthday, May 7th. But uh, May 7th was also an important date for this bombing campaign. So, I'm just going to scroll down to, uh, the, um, so here we go. It says, so I'm going to scroll down and read just some of what was happening, right? During this bombing of Serbia, of the Chinese embassy. So. So the U.S.-NATO were already facing scrutiny over mounting civilian casualties in a bombing campaign conducted without UN authorization and fiercely opposed by China and Russia. They had now attacked a symbol of Chinese sovereignty in the heart of the Balkans. And actually, there were massive protests in China against this, calling NATO a Nazi organization. And rightfully so, given how many Nazis were given shelter in NATO to forward their military careers. So... uh, here we go so i want to talk about let's see so the next day shen would learn right and this is so shen is um someone who lost close friends in the bombing in the embassy he was a chinese be- businessman and he learned that two close friends newlywed journalists uh shu Hu, 31 and uh, Zhu. A Ying, at 27, had been killed by a bomb that hit the sleeping quarters of the embassy. Their bodies were found under a collapsed wall. The pair had worked for Guangming, Enlightenment Daily, a Communist Party newspaper. Xu, a language graduate who spoke fluent Serbian, had chronicled life in Belgrade during the bombings in a series of special reports called Living Under Gunfire. And what's really interesting about this is that it is Chinese journalists now actually in Donetsk right? There are Chinese journalists actually covering what's happening in Eastern Ukraine during the Ukraine-Russia conflict, where the US media and the Western media completely ignores, completely ignores, actually attributes, right? These so-called Russian bombings, right? They'll attribute Russia bombings and operations within Eastern Ukraine as some kind of attack on Ukraine all itself without... Going over the context of how Russia is actually coming to the aid of these republics, which have been under uh, total and intense assault since 2014. So here with these bombings, you had Chinese journalists, this bombing of the UA- of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. You had Chinese journalists sleeping in quarters at the embassy while they were documenting NATO's bombings of Serbia called living under gunfire, right? So in total, three people were killed and at least 20 injured. So that's just another example of the devastation and destruction that Madeleine Albright was a part of. So this war had consequences for the entire region, for the world, And it spearheaded and started a campaign of humanitarian interventionism, which continues into this day and which causes devastation in nations like Syria and Iran through sanctions, through military occupation, the destruction of Libya, which destabilized the entire African continent uh, and set the continent back many, many years, if not decades. Right, the the destruction of Afghanistan, which continues into this day through humani- humanitarian interventionism, you have people being starved in Afghanistan for political purposes by the United States after their failed occupation of two decades. All of this has roots in the U.S. NATO intervention in Yugoslavia, which Madeline Albright helped uh, essentially spearhead and uh, has just untold blood on her hands and now she's gone, now she's dead. So we can raise a glass to that, but the struggle continues, right? The struggle continues onward when it comes to the war criminal and the war war criminal Madeline Albright and the criminality that she represents these entrenched militarist and imperialist interests that ultimately dictate a policy, that dictate the overall strategic and organizational expression of the entire system of imperialism. That is who Madeleine Albright was. She was the personification of what people call the deep state, but really she was the real state. That's What Madeleine Albright represents, the real state, the real managerial political class of actual power. She is someone that will always be revered by the ruling class because she most effectively got done what they want to get done. She gave legitimacy and credibility to wars that never deserved any of it. And The proliferation of this so-called identity politics, this neoliberal, uh, neoconservative view of women and people of color and other oppressed sections of the population kind of making their way up into the halls of power really does also find roots in Madeleine Albright's lauded career as a so-called diplomat, warmonger, who was able to uh, be a first, right, be the first woman to be anointed as Secretary of of State under Bill Clinton. And uh, she used that opportunity, as is always the case, right, to kind of break the glass ceiling when it comes to criminality, because that's what Obama did as well as the so-called first Black president. That's what breaking the ceiling, that's what Uh, being a careerist and being someone who is supposed to represent this grander vision of a so-called more perfect quote unquote union. That is why you see people like Barack Obama and Madeleine Albright able to be more effective and cause even more damage than perhaps their predecessors could. And it's because they can give this window dressing of legitimacy To a larger section of the political class especially the liberal class and and so we end up in a lot more difficult of a situation uh, where we are called sexist or racist for merely criticizing the condemnable policies of an administration of a government that is merely the organ of violence of an imperialist and capitalist system that is in decline. I say it a lot because it is 100% true. So with that said, let's move on to the next story, right? Because we can talk about Madeline Albright all day, but I don't want to. <laughs> uh, actually, one thing to share with you, I forgot to share it. Let me share this with all of you. And while you're waiting, please do like uh, the stream. Please do share it. Please do subscribe to the channel. Please do hit that notifications bell. Help boost this stream by liking, 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 retweeting it, doing whatever uh, you can do to get the word out that I'm on. And then, of course, the way you support my work is at patreon.com slash dannyhaifong at whatever amount you are able. It is very much appreciated. So (laughs) you might find this funny. Albright gets egged. I love the headline. This is 2000. This is right uh, at the end of the Clinton administration. Albright gets egged. So shouting death to American imperialism, two men hurled eggs Monday at Secretary of State Madeleine Albright after she told a university audience that defense of common values sometimes requires countries to pay a financial price. Oh, so it sounds like she was justifying those sanctions again. So after finishing a speech to an enthusiastic enthusiastic, audience at Tomas Masaryk University in the industrial city, 125 miles southeast of Prague, Albright was milling about in the crowded entrance hall as bystanders cheered. Suddenly, two men shouted death to American imperialism and started hurling eggs. Witnesses said some of the eggs splattered on Albright, who was rushed upstairs where she changed clothes for another appearance. Uh, The police said several people were detained for questioning but declined to give further details, yada, yada, yada. But anyway, she was – so, you know, she was championing at this time sanctions on Iran, right? She was trying to isolate the Czech Republic from Iran, right, for the nuclear weapons issue. She was – I mean, she was just a rabid imperialist. She just – she didn't stop, you know? And she didn't stop when she was out of formal – her formal political career. She was writing a book – on fascism or something as if she has any right to talk about fascism when she was literally supporting fascists in Yugoslavia, right? Albania actually has a pretty large fascist contingency given its role in world war II, and the U S and NATO were, we're supporting them. We're supporting them through the national endowment for democracy and other forces to essentially uh, starve and uh, create ethnic divides and tensions. They made up a large portion of the KLA, the Kosovo Liberation Army, it was it, it was just one of the most disgusting campaigns. And it was not the first or the last campaign where the United States supported fascist forces to destroy a country that they wanted to overthrow and ultimately uh, uh, obtain hegemony over. So with that said, she got egged and she deserved it. <laughs> it's not the first time that these politicians uh, get some kind of vitriol, some kind of opposition literally thrown at them, right? There was the famous shoe thrown at George W. Bush uh, as he was uh, moving toward or 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 speaking during the uh, invasion of Iraq. So she got egged, and that's great. So she got egged, and now she's dead. So I guess there is some good news sometimes, right, in the United States. <laughs> um, with that said, though, let's let's talk about the um let's talk about something that's pretty big as well and that is russia okay so the russia ukraine conflict whatever people want to call it it continues and the the seriousness of which ukraine is taking negotiations is not very high so I don't know how long this will last. Uh, Former General, former Colonel uh, Douglas McGregor, right? I know he's been on the gray zone. He's been on Tucker Carlson. But he's saying that the war is already over. I tend to believe him because I do think that Russia's military operation was very strategic, was very well thought out, and had the backing already of people's who had a lot of will to fight so we're talking about don donbass the people of donbass Donetsk and lugansk in particular uh, and i think just a lot of people in that region that there was a lot of will to fight right and you need that in a war because they have been they have been terrorized they are continue they continue to be terrorized by ukraine's military these fascist groups within the military and so Russia was really coming to their aid and as I described in the Ru- rush the Communist Party of the Russian Federation statement on the matter a lot of the operation was about supporting their efforts cuz they already have a military. I mean when you're being pummeled by a military you have to have your own military force. And so people didn't I don't think realize that. The people of Donbass are not just sitting around waiting for ballistic missiles, waiting for Nazis to come and throw them out of their homes, slaughter them. No, they are fighting back. So Russia was really support is really supporting those efforts. And it'll be interesting to see when this is all over, how much of Russia's military operation was actually offensive, was actually Russian weapons, or how much of it was actually them just supporting the offensive cap- capabilities and capacity of a people under siege, right? How much of this is actually Russian-speaking Donbass Residents, fighters, uh, their military apparatus and infrastructure in these breakaway republics. It'll be very interesting to see because I tend to believe, given Russia's strategic orientation to Syria, right, until at the 15, that it's probably similar, right? It's like backing up the Syrian army rather than going in and just uh, putting in a lot of ground troops, that a lot of this is probably bolstering the forces of, of Donbass. So with that said, these sanctions, of course, have already had such an impact. And I talked recently about dollar imperialism, dollar hegemony, and how that is being challenged in this latest campaign of sanctions because the price of oil, the price of gas has skyrocketed. The inflation crisis continues unabated. And there is a lot of desperation, a lot of desperation among the ruling class, the Biden administration, among European countries to try to rectify the situation. I mean, so much desperation that EU countries are still trading gas with Russia. They haven't necessarily banned it altogether. It's one of these contradictions, right, that while there is this widespread sanctions campaign that has cut off a lot of russia's economy from europe from the u.s etc from a lot of the global economy that is aligned with uh, these imperialist forces there's also the need for europe to get its gas or essentially see their lights turned out right and you know 40 percent of natural gas that europe uses comes from russia so With that said, there's this contradiction of the further you push Russia away, the more likely it is going to seek an alternative to the U.S. dollar. The same goes with China. The same goes with a lot of non-aligned countries and even aligned countries like Saudi Arabia. The more you push legitimate partners like Russia and China into a corner when no such corner exists. That's why I like the work of Pepe Escobar in this regard is that he's very clear that China and Russia are not isolated. They have much of the global South. They have much of the world actually continue to engage with them economically, no matter how bad the propaganda war against them, the new Cold War against them is, they're not isolated. China is probably the least isolated country in the world. It's probably the most open. It has the most relations with all countries across various political economic systems. And especially with the non-aligned countries, with the Global South, uh, China is a reliable and, and honestly, a, a really good friend. So, this is where the United States shoots itself in the foot when it comes to the dollar, because China and Russia are reliable partners, and they're not going to lose a lot of partners over this. They'll lose a tiny minority of the population in the West and the imperialist countries, and of course these countries have have a lot of hegemony and influence in the global economy. So it is hurting Russia, just like it is hurting the entire world economy uh, that uh, these sanctions are not productive in any sense. They not just starve Russians, but they're also creating hardships for people all around the world and the West in particular. But Russia has announced that it is going to and I'm going to share a CGTN article because I'm sick of western press guys I don't know how if I'm going to be sharing much western press because I I can't stand reading their articles about Russia it's in these moments where you're just like oh my god I don't I don't want to be repeating and uttering this just anti-Russia, rabidly racist and imperialist rhetoric from the corporate media so I can get it from somewhere else And I am getting this one from CGTN, where it's just a summary of what Putin has proposed, which is, I think, is a huge deal in relation to dollar, uh, you know, to to euro and the dollar's decline. So it's it's a huge move in the the currency sovereignty question, and the debate over self determination. This. Move by Putin announcing, right? This is what he did. He's announced that EU countries uh, are in dis-well, he's announced that payment must change in gas deals to rubles. So EU countries and hostile countries, right? And Russia came out with a list of hostile countries. It was mostly the United States, EU, and some of the non-Western partners who have just hook, line, and sinker, like Japan gone along with the narrative about Ukraine. But this is a huge deal, right? This is a huge deal <clears throat> because it is a it just like the Russia Ukraine, just like Russia's intervention in Ukraine on the side of Donbass was this, I think, earth-shattering moment where a country that has been besieged by imperialism, we have to frame Russia as that took a step forward and said no more and this is another step in that direction which I think is going to send shockwaves regardless of how fast this happens or not right we know that global capitalism isn't just affected by the material reality right the material sort of developments that occur in these steps forward, but even just the ideas being put forth out there, like changing payments, right? The same thing happened when Saudi Arabia says, maybe we'll trade our oil uh, with China in Yuan. When Saudi Arabia said that, you saw mainstream media go crazy because they know that this could have an economic uh, seismic shift, right? It could have a cataclysmic effect on the global capitalist order that relies on the petrodollar. And the same goes here with trying to require the EU to pay rubles for its gas deals. And so European countries have been thrown into disarray after Russian President Vladimir Putin said, quote unquote, unfriendly countries who buy Russia's gas will now have to pay in rubles. Russia will continue, of course, to supply natural gas in accordance with volumes and prices. The changes will only affect the currency of payment, which will be changed to Russian rubles, Putin said Wednesday at a televised meeting of top government ministers. European countries buy some 40% of their total gas consumption from Russia. Since the European Union announced sanctions on Russia in response to its special military operation against Ukraine in February, gas trade between the two sides has been thrown into a spotlight with daily trade volume fluctuating. The European Commission has not commented on the Russia's move, Russian move, but Germany's Federal Minister for Economic Affairs and Climate Action, Robert Habeck, said on Wednesday that he would discuss with European partners a possible answer to Moscow's announcement. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Root said on Wednesday that more time was needed to clarify Russia's demand. Questions have also been raised on whether the Russian move will breach trade rules. The previous day, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz dismissed calls for a boycott of Russia's energy supplies, saying that the existing sanctions against Russia have already been affecting its economy and will only get more dramatic every day. He noted that the sanctions were designed to be tolerable for those imposing them, including the long term. Countries who have imposed sanctions on Russia on the list of quote unquote unfriendly countries include the US, EU member states, Britain, Japan, Canada, Norway, and Singapore. So there you have it. You have open admissions, right? An open admission that these sanctions must be tolerable because there are consequences by Germany's new, uh, very proto, very pro-imperialist chancellor saying that, yeah, we don't want to completely turn the spigot off from Russia because that would be a disaster. While Russia is saying, okay, you're going to pin us so much against the wall, we will use what leverage we have. And say you got to pay up in our currency because now we actually have no use for dollars and euros. Because once you sanction an economy like Russia's to the point where none of its consumer goods can really be exported, none of its uh, other sectors of economy can really be functional in the West, then of course, why would you accept euros and dollars, right? That those huge foreign exchange reserves essentially are frozen, not to mention the fact that you have tens of billions worth in Russian assets abroad, which are effectively frozen and stolen from Russia. So this is, of course, a tit for tat, but it's an inevitable one and one that I think shows how there's less fear about uh, angering this kind of dollar imperialist hegemony than there was before because of Russia's entrance in the Ukraine conflict because of Russia's decision to come on the side of Donbass. It has really changed the calculus in a lot of ways, but it isn't necessarily new. And I'm actually writing for CGTN, an op-ed about sanctions and how sanctions are facilitating this move away from the dollar and how it's not a new phenomenon, right? The Belt and Road Initiative, the Eurasian Economic Union, all of these plans for integration and all of the ways in which the US is continuing to isolate itself has created a dialectic where it makes sense for countries that have been subjected to the unfair conditions of neo-colonialism and imperialism since the dollar became the dominant uh, foreign uh, currency, the dom the dominant uh, currency in the world after World War II. All these countries, right, should want a currency sovereignty and self-determination as a precondition to their right to sovereign development and the right to any kind of dignified existence. It's the only way it's going to happen. I remember in a past stream, somebody on here said that, you know, there are 14 West African countries whose currencies are still controlled by the colonial power of France, right? And that's 100% true. And so, Europe and the United States, we're always going to have to answer to this wholly oppressive, unfair and unjust social order that they preside over and how it affects economic development. And the growing closeness of global South countries, the integration projects, the infrastructure projects, uh, these models like the EAEU, the Eurasian Economic Union, the Belt and Road Initiative, they are all the precursors to a more independent South-South development model, which eventually will consider, if not completely implement uh, a currency exchange system that is independent of the U.S. dollar, whether the U.S. dollar wants to participate in it or not. And of course, the answer to that is not. They do not. Right? The United States has rejected any kind of of participation in any of these integration plans, even though China and Russia are not against U.S. economic bilateral multilateral relations, they are not against it, is the United States, which is wholly opposed to getting on board with a multipolar world because the U.S. imperialists and the Western imperialists as a whole, they see their very existence as being existentially threatened by such an order. They cannot stand alongside as equals to anyone else. They can only stand on top of. And so this move by Russia is a huge one, regardless of how long it takes. The same goes for Saudi Arabia announcing that it will eventually and will, will be in long-term talks with China about trading oil in the yuan. These are big moves, regardless of the time frame. Because they put the writing on the wall for imperialism, that this system is not permanent, that this system is not the only one that exists, that China's socialist economic model and its uh, multipolar and multilateral orientation to world affairs, uh, Russia's model uh, of a multipolar and multilateral approach to world affairs that they are alternatives to this and that countries that have been besieged by imperialism in Latin America, Africa and Asia can rely upon them. <clears throat> this is why you have protests in Iraq, in all in African countries uh, in favor of Russia's intervention in Ukraine. It's not because they love war, they but it's because they want to see the US and NATO, receive real justice. They want to see them beaten back because these countries have a history of being victims of imperialism of having their economies plundered and privatized of having foreign powers first colonize and dominate them directly only then to use proxy forces, to use neo-colonial regimes to continue under the underdevelopment and the political instability of, of these countries. So, While it may feel really isolating in the West, we may feel really isolated as anti-war and anti-imperialist forces. We may feel like that the world has gone mad or at least our world has gone mad because of the fever pitch of the propaganda and how it's been effective in convincing majorities of the populations of where we may reside, whether it's here in the U.S. or out in the West somewhere against Russia and fervently for war to massively arm Ukraine to militarize the entire region to risk world war 3 right when you have these conversations openly being had my wife recently who's a nurse was talking to someone a fellow nurse who was saying that she wants to see a no fly zone because they need to stop Putin at all costs when that propaganda is effective like that, it can feel really isolating and dangerous and scary to be someone speaking out against imperialism. But nonetheless, we have the majority of the world, China, Russia, and much of the global South not aligned with the U.S.'s imperialist ambitions in major ways, whether that's through uh, being able to be politically assertive, like uh, the independent sovereign and socialist-oriented governments in Latin America, like Cuba, for example, whether it's, of course, China and its ability and capacity to be uh, both non-aligned, take an independent foreign policy position, as well as meet incredible domestic goals for itself. Uh, These countries are the majority of humanity and will be in the lead toward rebuilding this world in a manner that is more just, more fair, more equitable, and more aligned with the needs of both the people on the planet. And so we have a lot to hang our hats on and to get involved in and uh, try to forward and promote while we wage our own class struggle here in the United States, right? So we do have hope in this regard. And I think that the space for that hope will continue to widen as these countries become more assertive out of both necessity and out of both uh, and out of their strategic orientation. So with that said, right, we are marching toward a multipolar world, a post-dollar world, post-euro world, uh, which is a lot longer in the making, right? That is not a short-term phenomenon, but it is one that will happen the more that imperialism declines and the more that China's rise and the rise of the global South occurs. And now the caveat to this <laughs> is that the United States, these NATO countries, these imperialists, will not allow this to happen without a violent fight. And that's where we come in. That's why we have to be steadfast. We have to organize. We have to be involved in political education, in the popularization of anti-imperialism, of Uh, Being involved in our own struggles in however way we can, whether you're an organizer, a writer, a journalist, whether you do media, whether you do activism, whatever it is, uh, you've got to go into those spaces ready to move that needle in the direction of peace and in the direction of a real understanding of world affairs so that our struggles here can be that much more effective, right? We have to have sophisticated conversations about racism and white supremacy and about the racism of imperialism and the racism of the United States' and Europe's domestic political situation, how those things are connected. We have to have those kind of conversations because uh, we cannot allow neoliberals, we cannot allow reactionaries to monopolize discourse on race and its impact on class struggle at home or abroad, to allow that to happen is, I think, one of the gravest mistakes of these so-called social democrats, these Bernie Sanders socialist light forces, which see all conversations, a lot of them see all conversations about race as merely a distraction, even while the United States engages in this unprecedented campaign of anti-Russia Uh, uh, phobia, this Russophobia that, of course, uh, was only bolstered by what has been a years-long campaign of renewed xenophobia, war on terror, racism like Islamophobia, and we can go on and on and on and on, right? our Racism is a real phenomenon. It is a real tool and weapon of war, and it is one That is used to wage class war here in the United States through mass incarceration, police homicide, through gentrification, through the ghettoization and super exploitation of uh, certain sections of workers, uh, black workers, immigrant workers, etc. These are all interconnected. Class war is war proper. It is the war of our moment of history. And it is not merely, right, class war is not just merely this idea of worker and the boss. While that is certainly central and a huge part of our class struggle, a class war certainly includes the realm of imperialism. And we have to understand it as such and to promote it as such for us to be really, truly in the class struggle on a global scale. And so that's what we learn from Russia's decision, right, to begin forcing EU countries, hostile countries, to pay for its natural gas in rubles. That's what we learn when we hear about Saudi Arabia considering uh, paying uh, China and yuan for its oil. Uh, that's when we. That's what we learn when we see right like China and Iran strategic partnership and cooperation agreement, Russia and China have huge strategic partnership and cooperation agreements. When we see this kind of alignment happening, when we see China and Russia right, sign on to being uh, rebuilders of Syria and, and admitting Syria into their economic partnership programs, the Belt and Road Initiative, for example, uh, Syria, Nicaragua, we can go on and on and on. When we see this happening, we have to be able to understand it as a righteous move against imperialism for multipolarity and for true independence, for true self-determination, to finish the struggle that Lenin started when he theorized about imperialism and self-determination. To finish that struggle is a key on the agenda of the global class struggle, and it is happening. It is happening right now. And so we have to be on board. We have to be supportive. We have to lend our solidarity. We have to speak out against our imperialist governments. We have to make uh, these uh, acts of aggression and this endless war regime part of our overall program for a class emancipation, for real liberation. So with that said, if you are still here, do support the channel. I'll just say first by liking the stream. That's how you boost it in the algorithm. Then after you like the stream, if you have not subscribed to the channel, please do that. Hit that notifications bell so you know when I come back on. And the way you support my work, my articles, I have one coming up for CGTN on sanctions, my hope. <laughs> I submitted it last night. Let's, uh, China time is different. So I'll be publishing that. I have a new article on Black Agenda Report. So do uh, read that. I do share that on all my social media and on my Patreon. But you're supporting all of this work, right? All this work that I'm doing, patreon.com slash Danny Haifong, for whatever amount that you're able to give, uh, really keeps the work going, keeps it sustainable. And I'm getting towards, right? I have this 2022 goal to really cap uh, the income. I'm getting towards it. And 2022 is still young, uh, but I am still looking to, get to this goal so I can stop asking. (laughs) Because I I really do truly hate asking. Um, You know, try to get to this goal, try to have a consistent base of support so I can, you know, move on, get the help that I need, right, and be able to compensate even just a little bit, and then um, move on. So with that said, thank you. Thank you so much factor fighter. Uh, Yeah, please do support <laughs> Big Teal. Thanks so much. Yeah, I do get in before I close the books. And I, I, I yeah, I just want to s- stop asking and, and stop, you know, it, it's just not me. Um, It's something very new that I started October of 2020. Because I felt like, wow, I was putting in so much work. I think the pandemic was just like, oh, wow, I've been doing this for six, at that time I was like oh, I've been doing this for 7 years and <laughs> I've put in thousands and thousands of hours of work into this and you know I think the model of supporters supporting you is a good one even though I do not like that these corporations take so much of it from me and from you which truly annoys me but that's that's capitalism right everything comes with a fee everything is about profit and so With that said, I'm going to end this stream, not yet. I'm going to be on for another 15 minutes, but I want to spend this last 15 minutes just talking a little bit about me because I don't feel like I do that that often. And I I did it in this podcast that was really good called What Radicalized You? And I really love the host uh, of that podcast and... You should check it out um, on Spotify. Check out their Instagram. Um, really, really good people uh, there, and so I got to tell my story. But I don't think I've really told that to you all, have I? I don't know. But with that said, you know, I've been having trouble securing the interviews because people have all sorts of different schedules, and my schedule doesn't always fit with others, and so. You know, I thought I would spend this last 15 minutes given that I didn't have an interview today. I'll try to I'm trying to get a few folks on here to kind of spread the love. But I do want to, you know, Kareem, I was on Revolutionary Blackout Network and he said something, you know, he's been trying to Dr. Kareem over at RBN, frequent guests. He's been saying this to me, you know, for me and Nick and others to get together and talk about our stories. I think it's a great idea what got us into this struggle, what got us into race, racism, anti-capitalism, socialism, anti-imperialism. And so I'll end it, you know, I'll give you a few minutes just to let you know how I got here, uh, because I think it's useful to review even for me. And I think Madeleine Albright's death got me thinking about this even more so, because I was a young child, and at that time of Albright's death was probably, I mean, it was a really turbulent time in my childhood, a really rough period of my childhood. And so I, I mean, first of all, I didn't become a politicized person. I had a lot of anger, right? A lot of anger that I kind of kept in. I still do this, and so I need to... Well, I've been in therapy for uh, I don't know, what year is it? 2022. <laughs> Long time. Um, but I had a lot of anger as a child that I didn't know where to put it, so I would put it. You know, I would it would just throw it back to me, and that's what a lot of people do. It's totally normal, but it is what it is. So, and I didn't really understand why. Right? I didn't understand why. I knew there were a lot of things that upset me. I knew there were a lot of stuff that I wish I didn't go through. But nonetheless, you know, we all have these stories, I think, especially in this moment of capitalism and decline. So when I heard Albright died and I started reviewing what was going on in Yugoslavia, thinking about the Clinton administration, I grew up in that time. I grew up in that time. That's when I started to gain at least, you know, the, the years, right? Early adolescence, pre-adolescence. It's when you start to learn that the world outside exists. It's not just you and your caregivers or whatnot, right? If we're going to go into theories of childhood development, right? It's like when we're young, 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 we, just, we can't see the world outside, even if it's happening to us, right? Which is what's so tragic about the young children who are taken by sanctions, starvation from sanctions, bombing campaigns, right? They don't understand what's going on, They don't understand why their neighborhoods are being blasted to smithereens or why they can't eat. It just happens. So, you know, when I was young around that time, late 90s, right, I, you know, my family was going through a really difficult time. Uh, there was a lot of mental illness on my parents' side and my father was working a lot of hours to make up for what was you know an extreme spending spree on the side you know that that occurred due to mental health issues and this also was happening around the time right that nato bombing was happening during the deregulation of wall street the elimination of Glass-Steagall, and so yeah, we. Uh, my father was a federal worker. He, you know, he's a union worker, so his wage was decent for, I guess, just the neoliberal era. But uh, by this time, you know, credit and debt was just becoming such a a staple of working class life. And uh, yeah, I'll always remember that time as being one that was super, just super difficult. Cause we had, you know, because of all the debt that was incurred because of the way that they prey on you. Right. My, I mean, my parents and, and mostly on uh, one side was spending a lot of money. Right. It's kind of like in this euphoria, this mania, Sending a lot of money, blowing what little savings we had, uh, compiling debt. The creditors and the, the credit card companies, Biden's people, they were on a rampage to accumulate all this massive debt from working people and, you know, people who were vulnerable. And that's what they did. That's what happened to me. And so we risked losing the home. We had to refinance several times just to keep it and have a little bit of equity to use to spend in other areas right because it was massive there was just a massive shortage of income to pay for basic things and there was a real worry that we would not be able to keep this three family three family house very small i lived in a very small apartment very old home one that was very affordable to purchase uh, my dad was a um He was a veteran, so he was drafted in Vietnam. Was a beneficiary of the GI Bill, so he was able to buy a home once he did get a federal job. It took him a while. Once he was able to get one, he was able to purchase a home for relatively cheap and get a a a favorable loan. That was a lot of what the GI Bill was. But with neoliberalism, a lot of that came back. A lot of that was taken away, and so there was a lot of strife. I mean, I'll never. I was. We were up. I was up, they would call late hours, early hours, right? Looking, debt collectors, looking, looking. I was very, very stressful, you know, not to mention living in a house of mental illness. It was stressful. Um, and then of course there was the racism piece that made me very angry because I grew up in a diverse quote unquote community, a working class community. And racism was just part of the language. It was just part of the experience, If whether you were hurling it, or whether you were experiencing or whether you were doing both because it was just that embedded in daily life like it is for most people everywhere in America. That's why I don't get the deniers. It's not that important. Uh, you kind of grew up, right? Talking about it, thinking about it. And it was really part of my experience. A lot of anti-Asian racism was just so prevalent right? The war jokes, the jokes about uh, Vietnamese and tunnels about quote unquote gooks and chinks and all of that was just part of my daily life. It's how people understood me so much to the point where I remember around this time too, right? 10, 11, 12. I was like trying to lie because I have like this mixed race background and say like, I'm from, I don't know. I like picked a part of the map. I was like, I'm from Greece, right? That's how much shame I had about my quote unquote identity. About my uh, national background. And, you know, my mother's side is Vietnamese, and she was not really open to talking about her background and comes from, I think, a pretty uh, right wing political background that emigrated during the liberation struggle before the big 75. I believe it was like 73 or so when she came. So before the big 1975 mass migration, she came with her family and then ended up splitting off, going to university, right, getting support from the government. And then she was like 17 at Boston University. And that's where she met my dad out there. My dad was like, I don't know, fumigating cockroaches and stuff. He was like a low wage, uh, pest control person when they met. And then he worked like sweeping up the coop bookstore before he got his federal job. So, um, but that's how they met. They met in Boston. They didn't meet in Vietnam, like a lot of people assume, just because he was drafted and went during after Tet from like, I think it was like 70 to 71, 69 to 71. And yeah, no, I just had a lot of anger from all those experiences, right? The financial hardship, the anti-Asian racism, the you know mental illness in the family. There was just a lot of stuff going on. I didn't understand it. So I just poured everything into whatever, whether it was Competing in the school, competing in basketball, I just like poured all of my energy into those things. And, uh, it, you know, it, it eventually wasn't satisfactory because I burned out, especially with basketball. I just like burned the hell out. I was like, damn, this is challenging. A lot of pressure. I just wasn't jiving with the, like the ultra competitiveness, the toxic competitiveness, uh, of organized basketball. And so you know it just never it, it just never really clicked for me even though i loved i love the game still and i and i love i loved it then i i still do love it it's just you know the way that uh, the culture is in this toxic parasitic society i just i eventually just had to quit at least in that level and so i was very lost after that time i was in college i was at this like upper elite institution cuz i thought i had to go I was uh, dating someone in high school who was very like a high achiever, really wanted. And I was I was a relative high achiever. I got good grades, but I didn't think anything of that. That was just like an exercise for me. Oh, yeah, I can I can get good grades. I can, you know, I was always looking at the next person, right? I was always looking next to me as like, oh, I need to meet their standards, right? So I was always competing against one of my friends, or whatever, to like, you know, get good grades. But it never really clicked about college, even though my sister was going to college, my older sister, I really wasn't that motivated for the experience of college. And I think that was because of my senior and junior year, which was incredibly difficult years for me, right? Incredibly difficult years. So I wasn't really thinking about it. And then I ended up just applying to a bunch of schools, got into one elite. Elite, quote unquote, uh, especially in price school, and that's where I ended up. And it was uh, Skidmore College. I was there, and it was a really difficult experience. A lot of Wall Street types, a lot of wealthy uh, capitalist types, and I can tell you that it was that experience, right? Seeing that, like, class, the cl- nature of class, just up in my face that started to propel me, right? I still only had this like race only analysis because that had been my language growing up as a child. And then it had been the dominant politics in this kind of like bourgeois way, right? This really like academic identity politics. So I I fell into that to begin, but then it just wasn't satisfactory. It wasn't explaining power I was I was feeling powerless to change things. I felt like everyone was trying to con me into thinking that things would change, even though we were merely just talking. So I had a professor who was like, look, get into the class struggle, even though he was a liberal or whatever. He was just like, look, this country has a history of class struggle in the labor movement. So uh, check it out. And he placed me in contact with a program in New York City, the union semester program. I did that for a semester, burnt out because Occupy Wall Street was happening. The internship was not a good internship, even though it was an interesting struggle, the Sotheby's lockout, uh, but I didn't know how to plug into that. It was really hard to know how to plug into something as just an intern students outside of the labor movement. They didn't have much for me to do. I didn't know how to insert myself. I wasn't an experienced activist. I just didn't have that yet. So that happened. That was disappointing. Occupy Wall Street taught me a lot, though, about politics. I met a lot of communists, anarchists, socialists. We would talk. I was very skeptical of all of them at the time. I was just like, I don't know where I fit on this spectrum. And I would just watch and analyze and see how their strategic conversations and then their efforts would bear fruit. And try to understand why certain things didn't work. Right. So there was this one example I remember, I'll always remember, of an organizer who wanted to go to, and I was dating actually someone who lived in this area, uh, Broadway Junction, which is in East New York, Brooklyn, very poor, very black neighborhood. And I was dating someone who lived very close to that area. So I was familiar with it. And I remember this white kind of Occupy Wall Street kind of on the Democratic Party spectrum was just like, we're going to go to Broadway Junction and and organize the poor folks who are there. We're going to merge our movements together and we're going to go to that train station. We're going to get this big showing. And I was just like you and your white middle class friends are going to go to a train station and just scream about and say why they need to join your movements. You're not gonna build relationships with the community. You're not going to talk talk about what their issues are. You're not gonna engage in a conversation as equals. You're just gonna go there and say, come come to us because we're right. I am like, I don't think that's gonna work. <laughs> like just from what I know about that neighborhood, people grew up in it. I'm like, I don't know if that's gonna work. I don't know if that's how uh, to address uh, the contradictions among our class especially when it comes to race. And of course it kind of, uh, well, it it kind of, it, it failed. So I learned a lot from that in that, like, you know, I needed to find a way to talk about class struggle that took into account the very particular contradictions of the United States, its society, its imperialist system. I started to read Huey Newton upon a request, uh, uh, I mean, a the suggestion of a former teacher in high school that didn't teach me, but he was a photographer as well. And he was in SDS and he was in the civil rights movement, quote unquote, and hung around with like black power folks. And he was just like, damn, it really sounds like you need to read and study uh, those who were radicalizing on the basis of race and class. And so I started doing that and it did really actually help me understand the situation a lot better because not only with people like Huey P. Newton and Asada Shakur talking about imperialism and capitalism from the perspective of the United States in a very clear way and also a very personal way, so I could really synthesize my own experience and see, okay, where do I fit in this? But then they were also saying, okay, I was reading Mao, Lenin, uh, Marx, Engels, and I was like, okay, I got to read them too. And so that got me on a trajectory of reading these works and then trying to put them into uh, practice with my activism. So my last few years of school, I just kind of focused on political education, started a little group, was able to get people like Norman Finkelstein on my college campus, Druba bin Wahad on my college campus, and uh, really focused just, yeah, on imperialism. Uh, I, I tried to do things around the intervention in Libya, but unfortunately the only Libyan students there were anti-Gaddafi. And- a little bit pro-NATO. So that was awkward, uh, the people I was doing Palestine work with. But nonetheless, I was just trying to do some political education. I started writing for the school newspaper a lot. Eventually got kicked off the school newspaper because I wrote, I I kid you not, I wrote an article about education privatization, and that was seen as too controversial, and I was uh, kicked off. Before that, I was talking about race and it was just controversial to the readers to the point where I was like receiving threats. <laughs> but nonetheless, I uh, started my writing there. And then when I got back home to the Boston area, I was like going around organizations, trying to figure out where do I fit. And then eventually I started writing because I, I, didn't, I didn't really fit in a lot of the organizational work, I was working too much to be too involved because none of the jobs I was getting early on made any money. So I was working too much. And so I was like, I need to be involved still. And so I started writing and I I gained this ability to write. I started submitting a Black Agenda report and I kind of weaved my writing into my schedule. So I, I started to build this skill of like, all right, if I'm going to write and work, I got to integrate my writing in my work. And so that's what I did for a long time. I found ways to do that. And, uh, I, you know, it helped me hone the skill of writing. I continue to read alongside. I always tell people if they want to write then they should read, they need to read consistently. They need to read different kinds of works. Don't just read articles. A lot of people just read headlines of articles. Well, I say, okay, read the whole article and then read different articles and then read books. Because if you don't read all sorts of different prose you're not really going to find your own style and i still struggle with that right especially as time becomes more and more condensed and difficult to manage so anyway that's what i started doing i started submitting weekly to black agenda report glenn ford helped me out a bit he was not the most vocal editor he would say like okay this is not good work this is good work here's how to improve a little bit here's how to organize your ideas and then i would take that and then know, try to do better. And eventually it just worked and became consistent. And yeah, that kind of, that's kind of how it happened. Uh, And I got really politicized by events like the U.S.-NATO bombing of Libya, which helped me find Black Agenda Report and then helped me kind of focus my study on liberation movements, on anti-imperialism, on Marxism-Leninism. And so I feel lucky in this era where there's all kinds of debates about socialism, Marxism, Leninism, that I feel lucky to, I feel to, I mean, I feel lucky to have been able to, in a moment where that wasn't happening to kind of take from all sorts of different trends, tendencies, et cetera, and try to build a, I don't know, dialectical materialist philosophy and lens to take into account, yeah, all of the contradictions and to then take firm positions based on those, regardless of the consequences. And then, of course, you know, as the years have gone on, you know, I did a lot of work on the U.S. war on Syria as an activist. I did some writing on it. Black Lives Matter was hugely influential. Then I wrote this book on American exceptionalism because of all that was happening with Russiagate and the Clinton uh, campaign of 2016, Sanders and all of that was happening. And I was like, wow, we really need to talk about this ideology because it's preventing us from moving forward. And then, of course, the new Cold War on China, on Russia went to fever pitch. And I've been focusing a lot of my attention on that because... I was able to go to china i was able to to really engage with a lot of anti-imperialist forces around the world who were doing this work and and i just see this struggle as, as so important as and as something that people don't talk about enough so that's in sum a little bit about how i got where i got that's how i'm here right now and you know i go through my ups and downs and You know, I think all of us are struggling with a lot, but I am truly grateful for all of the support that I've received over the years and that I continue to receive and it's growing. And I feel like people, um, you know, a lot of people are spreading my work and find it very helpful for them in a very genuine way and I think a very applicable way. And, you know, I, I, I try my best to help out organizations I won't, you know I, I think eventually I'm gonna join one, but I've always gone through ups and downs with uh, organizational work, but I I seriously uh, try my best to make things available to promote good work in the movement and uh, yeah, and and to through my writing and through my analysis, help organizations, help movements, help activists uh, get to the places where they want to go where I can't tell them or guide them or tell anyone, all I can do is provide a, a, a sort of a picture of what's going on so that we can all together figure out what's the best uh, trajectory from here and, you know, continue to argue and demand that socialism, right? Real revolutionary socialism be on the agenda while taking into account the material reality and giving a real attention to it. So, that's me in a little bit of a nutshell. It's not a lot. I mean it's there's a lot more to it a lot more a lot more uh, grit there. Um, I even mentioned that you know most of my career has been in social work and I still do therapy part-time. I just started that actually. that's like a new endeavor and it's <laughs> it's both good and it's very strange. But I'm doing it, and um, because I need a little bit extra money, I didn't. I kind of didn't want to necessarily go into it right away, but I knew that the Patreon thing would take some time to develop. So, of course, you know that's how you can support this work um, as I, you know, try to find my way through this COVID-19 world, as we all are doing. And with that said, you know I'm gonna probably end here soon, um, but. Uh, I wanted to say that yeah I appreciate all of you and before you go of course do all the liking do all the sharing the stream because it's going to stay up uh, make sure you subscribe to the channel hit that notifications bell and man I feel like there was one more thing I wanted to say but I cannot remember what. it is. <laughs> um yeah you know I I think that there will be more to come. Oh, yeah, I know what I want to say. So, you know, uh, my wife is in a job transition, and so she'll be off for a few weeks. So these may be fewer and farther between. I have a lot of streams from the past that I got a clip for those who are, aren't able to make them. So I'm probably going to work on that at least through the weekend and then see where next week I may be able to fit something in. I have a few guests that I've been trying to work out. I'm not going to tell you who they are yet. Um, that I've been trying to work out. Scheduling with, uh, that's been tough, but you know, life is very busy, uh, for a lot of people right now. And so, yeah, perhaps I'll try to get one in next week, um, maybe at a different time that works for my wife and I, cause she'll be like just home. And, uh, yeah, and, and I, I definitely, you know, need some time <laughs> to not be, uh, doing this work but at the same time I definitely want to keep and continue it so so yeah um so she'll be off until like the 18th there well, I'll definitely have like a a week break probably where I just don't do anything and then I'll try to get at least one in in the subsequent weeks and then there'll be a lot of clips on the channel and I'll definitely continue to try to write I'm doing more shorter articles now I've resigned myself I've said if I'm gonna do more, streaming, if I'm going to get it on Odyssey and do all of the other, you know, all of this other media, which is important, you know, I think it's important to get it out in this format. Then I need to do shorter articles, which I honestly, I enjoy shorter articles a lot better. I know that some people like those real heavy hitting like 5000 worders, but that's never been me. And it takes me a lot of effort to do it. And I just don't know where <laughs> i just don't know where the audience is all the time for that you know um so um so yeah you'll get short articles from me for here on out and uh so look out for those you know i got one coming out soon and then um yeah i'll just i'll just keep you know keep responding to things and trying to put in work that hopefully is valuable and helps out with the overall discourse so anyway peace out everyone this was a great stream it was good to be on with you um you know and continue to like share it subscribe to the channel hit that notifications bell, and yeah support my work patreon.com slash danny we're getting to the end of the month so yeah anything that you are able to contribute is very much appreciated Salute everyone, peace out, and I'll hopefully see you again soon um, and and take care. Bye-bye.